Good morning. Thank you. Good morning, Tom. So good to see you all here. Just want to say welcome. And uh, now's the time. Hey, open up your Bible and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, that is okay. There are some on the seats in front of you. They look like this. And if you're following along in one of these Bibles, page 828 is where we're going to be. Uh, we're continuing our series, just walking through the book of First Peter. Again, that's kind of business as usual here at FBC. We'll take a book and we'll walk on through it. So we're in week two of that series, and we're just going to jump into the text. I'm going to read it out loud for us. If you're hustling to find it, uh, that is okay. Let's read the first few verses here. It says this, First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be... To the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you to say thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us who you are and what you have done, for revealing your heart to the world in the scriptures. God, we come with grateful hearts for who you are, for giving us another day of life and another Sunday to worship you. And God, we come with humble hearts, recognizing our need, that we need your help, Lord, to understand what we have just read. We need your power by your spirit to open our eyes, to teach us, to speak to us, to help us apply your word to our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would come and do that work in us today. Pray that you would remove distractions from our minds and our hearts and, and help us hear uh, your voice. God, we give you this time. We thank you for it. We pray this all for your glory. Lord, for our good and the good of your world, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I imagine you have been in a situation where someone comes to you and they said, I have good news and I have bad news. Which do you want first? And how do you answer that question? Bad news, right? Most of us. Does anyone say good news first? No. Okay, oh, maybe. Okay. yeah, most of us say, give me the bad news. I say the same thing. Give me the bad news. Let's just get it all out on the table. Deal with this like adults. Give me the bad news. We'll figure it out. Go from here. Now, if that's you, which I think most of us are there, then you'll be glad to hear what we're talking about this morning because last week we started this sermon series through the book of First Peter. We've called Life in Exile. And we started with some bad news, some difficult news. Peter, the apostle, writing to these first century Christians in Asia Minor, and he tells them, reminds them, you are in exile. You're in exile. Following Jesus means life in exile. Now, if you're in exile, it means that where you live, it's not your true home. You might have a house, you might have a place to lay your head, but it's not your true home. Your true home lies elsewhere. And so you, as a follower of Jesus, are a stranger. 
in a strange place. You're a foreigner, a sojourner. You're someone just passing through, someone who doesn't quite feel at home in your community. And we talked about last week how it's not as much an issue of geography, the way that Peter is writing and using the concept of exile. It's not an issue of geography, but because of your commitment to Christ, your commitment to follow him, it means that your beliefs, your convictions, your lifestyle, how you live, it's going to put you out of place in this world. You're going to be out of sync with your neighbors and your community. You're going to be strange, looked at, kind of funny. It can be rather uncomfortable to live as a Christian in this world. And so that's the bad news. The hard news that we kind of chewed on last week. But this morning, we have some good news. We actually have a lot of good news because Peter, the author of this letter, uh, moves beyond his initial greeting to the churches in these first two verses that we looked at last week. And now he's just going to, to run with all of these incredibly big concepts of good news and what God has done for you. Good news that are intended, that is intended to anchor your heart and your soul in Christ, to give you confidence to face the world around you with joy and with hope. And actually, verses 3 through 12, which is the section that we're going to look at, is just one big run-on sentence in the Greek. He's just like running on, overflowing with, with joy, and hey, this is great, and hey, by the way, this is great, and hey, by the way, this is great. It's on and on and on. And so there's going to be a lot that we're looking at this morning. But he's saying, I know you're in exile, but here are these truths I want you to remember that are going to sustain you in exile. And so let's jump in and see the first truth he wants us to remember. We already read verse 3, but I'll read it again for us. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so first thing, he says, I want you to remember the truth about your salvation. I want you to remember the truth about your salvation. See, as Christians, often we maybe wonder, what exactly is it that takes place when I become a Christian? What, what changes in my life? How should we think about or understand this, this idea of salvation or being saved? And so Peter is going to unpack that for us and give us some ideas. And he starts in verse 3. And you see the first thing he mentions, we're to praise God, and he mentions that our salvation is based on God's mercy. Right? In his great mercy, it says, because of the, the compassion of God, the love of God, the grace of God, he has given us all that he has given us that we're going to see in the verses. But we start with the grace of God, the mercy of God, which reminds us that contrary to what we often assume, or our default kind of religious mode, we think that we earn or we work for the grace of God. We work for the favor of God. But Peter reminds us right from the get-go that all of these blessings that we enjoy come because of God's mercy as a gift to us. Not something we earn, not something we work for, but simply because of God's mercy, his love, his grace. For the world. And so in his mercy, 
He says, verse 3, God has given us new birth. See the language? Give us a new birth. Now, maybe you've heard the idea of a born-again Christian. Heard that language? This passage kind of uses that language. We see this in John 3. We see this actually throughout the New Testament, this idea of new life, being born again. And it's not a, a special designation or a special type of Christian, as if there are Christians, and then there are the born-again Christians. You know what I mean? They're, there's like 2% milk, and then there's whole milk. There's like the real deal. You know, that, that's not what he's saying. He's getting at the point that any believer, anyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ has this new birth, this new life in them. They are born again. And so think about how sweeping that language is, how how big of a a concept new birth is. I mean, is there any more uh, powerful, vivid illustration of, of a fresh start than a new birth? I mean, when you were born, that was a pretty big moment in your life, right? A lot changed that day. You received your your identity, your citizenship, your, your family, your social status, all of it comes to you as you are born. And so, Peter is pointing out that in Christ, believers have this new birth, this new life, this new identity, new citizenship, a new family. They belong to God, a new place with him, they've been given new hearts, a fresh start. It's so important that we, we understand how radical that changes, that transformation is. Because sometimes what we do is we think about becoming a Christian or, or following Jesus or going to church. And we're like, man, that's kind of like some minor adjustments that I bring into my life. Like life's going pretty well. I just want to enhance it. You know, make it a little better. So I'll adopt, you know, some new moral principles and maybe work in just a few new, you know, spiritual practices. And that's what it's about. It's just to come alongside my already pretty good life and enhance it. Like we're not talking about extreme home makeover. We're talking about minor adjustments. Like think about if your life, let's say, was a house. Sometimes the way we think about it is like, well, I just need a fresh coat of paint. My house is getting kind of old. Maybe I'll replace some light fixtures a couple new tiles in the kitchen, fresh paint on the outside. But, but, but let's not get too crazy. It's not an extreme home makeover. But do you see how the idea of new birth, new life is much more radical than that? I mean, taking that same image, if we think about our life as a house with new birth, it's kind of like, man, your house was a dump and the, the front door got kicked in and there's raccoons in your kitchen and... A, a trash can fire in your living room, someone's cooking meth in the basement, and your windows are broken in, and there's no water, and Chip and Joanna Gaines show up, and they're like, uh-uh, no, like, we, we can't even, we can't do it. We can't handle this project. But then, but then Jesus shows up. And Jesus says, okay, we're, we're going to gut this thing. <laughs> Extreme home makeover. We're going to start over. We're going to give fresh life to everything here. Not just some minor improvements. And so Peter's saying, in Christ, do you realize the radical change that's taken place? This new birth, this new life that you now have, this, this fresh start. You've gone from death to life. 
your old heart was broken and sinful, you've gotten a new one. You've been forgiven of your sins. You've been restored to a relationship with God. And so this is good news for us because I know, I know that, that we can relate to the feeling of, of just being broken and feeling shame because of our sin, knowing we're guilty before God, wrestling with the reality that we're not the people we wish we were. We, we see the, the pain we've caused and our, our continual inability to, to change on, on our own. And so here then is this promise of, of new life, of a fresh start of transformation, new hearts. That's what the gospel offers us. That's incredibly good news for, for all of us. You have new birth, he says, into a living hope, he continues, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, hope is this confidence in what we cannot see. Assurance of things that we hope for and long for and look forward to. So he's saying our hope, it's not a dead hope. It's not a shaky hope. It's not a, we'll see, I hope it all turns out okay kind of hope. Not a vague hope. It's not like the real estate market where we're like, yeah, things look good. It's probably going to keep going up, but it might crash. We don't know. It might go downhill. We'll see. Say, no, you have this living hope, this enduring confidence of good things in the future because, because, he says, your hope is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your hope is in the resurrection, that, that Jesus is alive, and he's alive forevermore. And so we don't have to worry about him dying again. He's alive. And so through faith, we are united to him and made alive with him. And so we have this enduring confidence in Christ and in our future. And no matter what comes here in the temporary setting, in the earthly setting, we have this life eternal with Jesus because he has shown us that he is, had victory over death. Right? We celebrate the cross. We celebrate his death for our sins, of course. But the story doesn't stop there. We celebrate his resurrection. That he's alive again. He's alive now. He's living in us. He's reigning forever. And so that's where our confidence and our hope is grounded. Our future is secure because Jesus Christ is secure and alive. And so you probably notice in the text just how central to everything Jesus is. Right? We see verse 3, our reason for hope is in him. Also skipping ahead a little bit, if you look at verse 8 with me, it says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So our hope and our joy is anchored in Jesus, that we can know him. And as verse 8 says, that we can love him and trust him, even if we can't see him with our eyes. And so you see, it's all pointing us to Jesus, a relationship with him and faith in him. Have you ever met a Christian? I know I've met a number of people who use the label Christian, how they would identify themselves, but there doesn't seem to be within them a love for Jesus. Right? This deep, enduring trust in the person of Jesus Christ. And so sometimes 
uh, Christianity or following Jesus just shifts into this, like you jump through some religious hoops or there's this thin layer of religion that you kind of uh, spread over your life, but there's not this deep, enduring, abiding trust in Jesus Christ and love for him that you know him. I mean, think about it. Wouldn't it be kind of strange if you were talking to someone and they were married, but they never talked about their spouse? You know, their spouse never came up in conversation. You know that they got married, like, at some point in the past, but you never really hear about their spouse. You never really see them spending time together. You think there, there's something strange about that. And so in the same way for, for Christians, if we are walking with Jesus and our life is rooted in him, it should be strange if a love for him is not evident, right? If there's not talk of him, if we don't seek to make much of him and continually talk about who he is and what he has done in us. And so these verses are all pointing us to Jesus. We have this hope in him, verse 8. We should have this love for him and this trust in him. So it's because of God's mercy. You have this new birth into a living hope through the resurrection. He goes on, verse 4. There's more. He's like, there's so much good news here. I'm just going to keep going on, verse 4. And, and, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. See, in the ancient world, the idea of an inheritance was very important. It's the primary way that, that wealth was passed down to generations, that land was passed from father to son and on. And so it was a huge source of, of security, of, of hope, being written into the will of your parents having an inheritance to look forward to. And maybe some of you have experienced this today when, when parents pass on, their estate is passed on to you or you and your siblings to, to deal with it in that way. And so it's quite likely that uh, the audience of First Peter, the people, the Christians that Peter's writing to, uh, could have had their inheritance from their parents uh, taken away. They could have been cut off for their faith in Christ. In fact, many in the world today, especially in a Muslim context, if you follow Jesus and make that commitment, you could be cut out of your family. You could be excommunicated from your community. You could be cut out of the will. And so there could be serious consequences for these believers who are following Jesus. They wanted to stay faithful to him. They could lose wealth, lose status, lose security for their future. And so Peter's reminding them, friends, I want you to know, be comforted by this truth that you have an inheritance in Christ that far exceeds any wealth or security in this life that an earthly inheritance could bring. And so you can look to the future with great confidence, knowing that you are a part of God's family. And in Christ, you have a rich inheritance in him. You have incredible things to look forward to as he continues, verse 4. This inheritance will never perish, spoil, or fade. It's not going to go away. See, your earthly inheritance might be taken away, might be stolen, might be destroyed in some sense. You might die before you get to enjoy it. But he's saying this inheritance that you have in Christ will never perish, will never fade. It's untouched by death. It's untainted by evil. It doesn't weaken over time. 
This actually sounds a lot like how Jesus talks about treasure in heaven, does it not? Verse 5, it's kept for you who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. So God is protecting you by faith. He's shielding your heart, not meaning that hard things won't come, but that your heart, your faith, God is guarding you. God is protecting you at work in your life until the fullness of salvation is revealed at the end of time. Now, I know this has been a lot so far. This is all just point one of the sermon, by the way. Okay, this is, uh, there, there's, this is a dense text. There's a lot here, but, but notice, just a quick recap. Peter's saying, I want you believers to remember the truths about your salvation. Because of the mercy of God, you have this new birth, you have a living hope through the resurrection, you have an inheritance in Christ, you have much to look forward to, you have God's protection over your life now, and so here's why this matters. We know what it's like to live in fear of the future. We all can relate with that, can't we? To look at the future with uncertainty, right? Whether you're a Christian or not, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, whether you're young or old, you can relate to the feeling of, I don't know if things are going to be okay. Right? Am I going to be okay? Are my kids going to be okay? Is my family going to be okay? We worry about all kinds of things, whether it's health or, or money or relationships, right? Like we can relate to fear of the future. So Peter is trying to tell them, he's trying to tell these believers in the first century, the same is true for us. He's trying to say, you don't have to be afraid. Saying, you don't have to be afraid. If you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, you have this new life, you have this living hope, you have this inheritance that, that cannot be touched by, by death or the worst thing that could happen to you in this life. So you don't have to be afraid. If you know Christ, you can rest in all of this and put your head on your pillow at night with confidence and with joy, no matter what temporary circumstances you're walking through. It's a gift offered to us. I encourage you, if you're here today and you're like, man, I don't know if I have that sort of confidence. I don't, I don't know if I've ever really put my faith in Jesus Christ and made that decision to follow him and received this. And I'd encourage you to consider making that decision today, trusting in Jesus Christ. On that connection card you got, there's a box that says, I'd love to know more about following Jesus. If that's you today, we'd love to talk with you. I'm sure if you're here with someone, they'd love to talk with you about who Jesus is and what it's meant to follow him in their lives. But Peter says, I want you to remember the truth about your salvation. There's more. He goes on. Verse 6. In all of this, everything we've talked about, in all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And this reminds us a little bit about what we talked about last week, right? The first century Christians that Peter is writing to are facing trials, and it's, it's likely that they're not necessarily being killed or taken away to prison or their heads are being cut off because they're following Jesus. I mean, horrible things like that happened in the history of the church, and especially the first century church, the hands of the Roman Empire. But here, the setting for First Peter isn't like outright persecution, most likely, but rather it's being socially cut off, being in exile, 
being uncomfortable, being out of place, being viewed with suspicion, maybe a little bit of hostility, family relationships being strained. And through all of this, verse 6 says, it's brought about various trials, maybe financial issues because of it, social issues for sure because of it, health issues possibly because of it. And so he points out, hey, this, this new life in Christ, this incredible privileged position you have as a child of God, does not mean that you have a carefree earthly life necessarily. But he wants them to know, and he wants us to know, the truth about these trials. The truth about them. And he continues, these have come, these trials have come, so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So you see, he, he uses the image here of gold, this precious metal that is refined by fire. See, gold and other precious metals will be placed in a crucible and heated to intense temperatures. So the impurities in the metals uh, would rise to the surface and could be scraped away. And so what resulted was a purer metal, a stronger metal. It was refined in that way by fire. And so Peter is saying, hey, gold goes through this process, but gold is still temporary. Right? Gold isn't an eternal thing, but your faith says the proven genuineness of your faith, that is of greater worth than gold. And so he's, he's pointing out that these, these trials, these challenges, these difficulties that come from living in exile are, are proving or, or refining these believers, refining their faith. God is, is using these challenges. He has a purpose for them. He's at work in them. And I know that perspective on, on suffering or on trials or on difficulties can sound foreign to many of us today. In fact, some have studied how different cultures deal with suffering and deal with trials and have concluded that modern Western society is the worst culture in the history of the world at dealing with suffering. There's no culture has been worse at preparing their people to deal with suffering than modern Western society. Interesting, right? Why is that? He said, well, for many today in the modern West, we are told that the purpose of life is self-fulfillment. Just to find happiness, right? To find joy, to be fulfilled. And so, when trials come, when suffering comes, it's seen only as a roadblock, something that stands in the way, an unfortunate hiccup that, that prevents us from experiencing the life that we want and having the joy or the purpose in life to be fulfilled. Not to mention that in a, in a modern secular mindset, suffering is completely random, has no meaning to be found in it. There's no purpose behind it, right? There's no refiner, no one refining the gold and removing the impurities. It's just random. 
In a universe without God, there's no purpose behind it, no bigger meaning to be found. And so you can see that if we're coming from a secular mindset, that we're not very equipped to deal with suffering well because it's just a hiccup with no meaning, a random roadblock that we want to move past as quick as we can because it only takes away from our meaning in life. But then here comes Peter. And he presents this different take on trials. Doesn't he? This distinctly Christian perspective, which realizes first that our, our goal in life is not necessarily self-fulfillment and not personal happiness. Right? So there's actually a bigger picture for all of us. That we're intended to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so in light of that, suffering and trials can be used not just to get in the way of us reaching our goal in life, but can actually propel us forward. God can use trials to shape us and form us and mold us into the people that he wants us to be. And so Peter's giving us incredible hope that whether good or bad comes, God will use it for your good to shape you, to draw you closer to him, to, to teach you. And so in exile, Peter's saying, hey, hardships are part of it. Expect these trials, but know the truth about them, that God is using them. That God is shaping you, refining you, and your faith and your heart through this. And maybe you felt this. I'm sure in a room this size, many of us can relate with that experience, right, of being excluded or being mocked or being left out, or maybe being passed over for a promotion because of our faith, or any, any number of things we, we can relate to trials, to challenges, to wounds because of our faith. And God's saying, those things are not wasted. I'm there in them. I'm using those things for your good, to strengthen your faith, to draw you closer to me, to help you love me more and become the person that I desire you to be. A lot more could be said about the Christian perspective on trials or suffering. We could talk a lot longer about it, but maybe that it could be a start for some of us. It's so realizing that in God's sovereignty, he can use those things and does use those trials for our good and for his glory. And that doesn't mean that these things are easy or that we're to quickly move past them without grief or without sorrow or without pain. I mean, the pain and the loss and the challenge is still there. And so we don't just rush people through grief with some kind of pat answer. We let people process. We don't always understand the exact reasoning either. We can't always draw on a map a direct one-to-one -one correlation with something that we're going through and exactly what God's doing through it. Often his plans and his purposes are complex mysterious and bigger than we can fully wrap our minds around. And so there is this place of trust that Peter is trying to bring us to. We might not be able to map out the exact reasons for every trial that comes, but we can trust that God in his grace and in his sovereignty and in his wisdom is using them in our lives. And so, in exile, he's saying, remember the truth about your salvation and remember the truth about these trials you're going through. But there's more. Verse 10. We're going to actually have to move through this last section kind of quickly. We won't spend as much time here, but I want you to see it in the text. 
verse 10 through 12, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. If that was your first time reading that text, you might have to go back and read through it again because there's a lot there. It's, it's pretty uh, dense, but... I think we can trace kind of the general thought here together. Peter's saying, I want you to know the truth about your place in God's plan. Your place in God's story. See, basically the flow of thought starts in verse 10. There were these prophets, these authors of the Old Testament, who spoke of or, or talked about God's grace and this future salvation that was to come. And verse 10 and 11 saying, they searched, they were trying to find out when all of this would happen. And in verse 12, they realized that the things that they were talking about, that they were speaking about, were to come in the future. They were writing and speaking for future generations. And he's saying, these things have now been told to you. Okay, and so Peter is saying to his first century audience, hey, you have heard the gospel, like this message of salvation. The prophets spoke about it. In the Old Testament, they even wondered when the Messiah would come and when the fullness of God's plan would unfold and be revealed. He's saying, now, in your lifetime, you've seen it. You've seen Jesus. His death on the cross, his resurrection, it's happened. The unfolding of the gospel has happened before your eyes in this generation. So you have the joy, he's saying, and, and the privilege of living in a day when this salvation has been made known. It's been revealed. So he's saying, don't you see where you are in the story? He's saying, don't you see how good, I mean, this is the spiritual version of you don't know how good you have it. Jesus, you had that conversation? I'm still kind of young, but I can look back at my childhood and look at like people who are growing up today, and even I can say, you don't know how good you have it. I remember Blockbuster Video. <laughs> you remember that? You used to have to go to the store to rent a VHS tape to drive home and watch it. And now what do we do? We have Netflix or Hulu or any number of streaming devices. When I was a kid, that would have made no sense to hear about that. We also, I mean, you, we could go on and on about life today and the things we enjoy, smartphones and maps. There's a map. What, do you remember the day when you would go to someone's house? You didn't know how to get there. You had to call them. Like, how do I get to your house? And they're like, yeah, here's my address. And turn right here. And you're like, okay, hold on. And turn left here. And now they just text you an address. And you just plug it in your phone. And you get there. It's incredible. And there's things like Uber and essential oils and all kinds of things that... I know, right? It's an incredible world we live in. Kids growing up today, you don't know how good you have it. And so Peter's trying to tell these Christians, 
don't you see what a special time to be alive it is for you because you have this privileged position to see the plan of God and how it's unfolded, this plan of salvation in Jesus Christ, this hope for the world and salvation for sinners. It's now been announced to you. And so if that was true for them in the first century, how much more is it true for us today? That we can see the plan of God unfolding in the Old Testament, the fulfillments of God's promises in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but the birth and growth of the church. Generations and centuries of church history and God's presence and work in the world. We have an incredible privilege to be at this point in the story, to have seen so much that God has done. It gives us confidence, right? Reminding us, we're not, we're not just making this stuff up. This isn't just some like new hot take on religion that we've come upon. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's plan of salvation for, for thousands of years we've seen. So it should give us confidence. You know, a few years ago, I remember uh, my friend, Bree, telling me this story. It was one of the weirdest stories I've ever heard. She told me about her sister, who was a little younger than us. Uh, she woke up one morning, and she forgot everything about the past couple years. Like, seriously, like, everything. She woke up, and I think it was like 2013, okay? She wakes up in 2013, and in her mind, she thinks it's 2010. She thinks she's going to the school that she used to go to, even though she had graduated. She thought she was dating uh, an old boyfriend that she had since broken up with. She went to a culinary school. In that time, she forgot all of it, all the skills, all the recipes, all the training from school. She didn't remember anything. Can you imagine? It was bizarre. It had some weird medical condition and medication complication. It was very strange. And so her family had to explain to her Hey, actually, no, here, like, here's who you are. Here's what life looks like for you now. Here's who you're dating and not dating. Here's, you know, what school looks like. Here's your friendships and everything. She had to relearn it. She had to remember it and hear it afresh. Her name was Kristen, and I think oftentimes as Christians, we can relate to her experience where we wake up and maybe it's not complete wiping of our memory, but we, we forget, we forget these, these incredible truths about the gospel, about who we are, about the love of God, about who we belong to, about our hope for the future. And so we have to remind ourselves, here's who you are. Here's who you belong to. We're a forgetful people. And not only do we need to remind ourselves, but we need to remind one another to be a church that constantly speaks the gospel, that encourages one another. That's one of the main reasons we have small groups. So not just on Sundays, but we're getting together during the week, going back to scripture, praying together, reminding one another about who Jesus is and what he's done and the hope that we have. We're forgetful and we need to remember. And so that's what Peter's trying to do for us here. He's trying to remind his audience, hey, this is life in exile. That's the difficult news. But here's the good news. Remember these truths about your salvation. Remember these truths about the trials you're facing. And remember these truths about the place you are in God's story and his 
plan in history. And he's saying all of that will sustain you as you live in exile. Let's pray. Now, our Father, we thank you for your word. Again, it challenges us, it convicts us, it comforts us. God, we are so grateful for these truths. Thank you for this new life we have, this living hope we enjoy, this confidence in the future, this inheritance we have in you. Thank you for these truths of our salvation, of how you're at work in our lives, in these trials, in these difficulties, God. I pray for anyone here today that is really carrying a burden, Lord, that they would find peace and rest in you for whatever it is they're facing. And I pray you'd give us confidence in who you are and what you've done. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.